You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. Welcome to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Sally. And I'm Zach. And we are here with episode three of season four. That's right. And we have a great episode lined up for you. We have two different guests. One is a writer at 539. If you've ever read that. 538. (laughs) If you've ever read that blog, we did mention it in one of our episodes with Ishan, where we were talking about Steph Curry. Right. So that was my first introduction to it. I read it all the time. She also writes for a bunch of other things. It's a sports website. Well, yeah. primarily sports. She's not a sports writer, actually. She's right. a news writer. And so we're we'll not hear more talking about, about sports, but yeah, we'll hear more about that soon. And then we're going to bring back one of our contributors to talk about a game that has taken the world by storm. We bet you can't guess what this game, which is played on your iOS or Android device, could be. <laughs> so that's what we've got lined up for today. But before we do that, Zach has something that he prepared I have something for us. special in the yeah, store. Yeah, something special. Right, so... Are you going to introduce or explain the context? I will, yeah. Okay, cool. So I don't really know the history of this. You might know it better <laughs> than I do. But Sally recently introduced me to the Bon Appetit podcast, which is a food podcast. Yeah, it's there. It's called a food cast, and it's Bon Appetit Magazine's podcast. So the editor-in-chief, Adam Rappaport, he... He is the host. He travels all around and talks to amazing people in the food industry. It's fantastic. If you're a foodie, you should listen to this podcast. You should. Uh, The first one, and actually today the only one I heard, was with the uh, proprietor of a cafe called Squirrel. Squirrel is spelled S-Q-I-R-L. In L.A. In L.A. And they talked to her all about her vision for food and how she started her restaurants and all of this. And it was a really great interview. But at the end, they gave her what they called the lightning round. And they do this for all of their guests. All of their guests, no matter who they are, they always get the lightning round at the end. Right. So the lightning round premise is that you have a series of questions, I don't know, probably 10. And you have to, you have to answer them very quickly. So it's just posed to you. And, and they're always either or. Right. Right. So that's the format. Would you prefer this or this? And so you have to choose uh, within, a, within a matter of seconds in the lightning round. And it's kind of funny because for most people, they – they force them to make a choice. Like some people will be like, oh, that's so hard. Oh, I don't know how I'm going to do that. They're like, you have to choose. But then for some of the really important people who've been on the show, I can't think of an example at the moment, but like really high profile they culinary geniuses, they let them get away with both and. Yeah. <laughs> so I will try to choose either or, but I have a feeling you're going to make this hard for me. <laughs> you can't. You can't do a combination. It has to be either or. <laughs> okay. Um, the hallmark or trademark last question that they ask is always olive oil or butter. So we'll start with that one. Sally, lightning round. Here we go. Olive oil or butter. If I only had those two options for the rest of my life. it's You're reading too much into this. It's just a simple <laughs> either or question. Olive Which one oil, do I prefer more? Olive oil or butter? Just something. Okay. Uh, butter. Sweet or savory? Mm, so mean. He even let me know about this question in advance. <laughs> this is the one question I let her know about in advance. Savory. Okay. LaCroix beverages. Uh, so this is all in the realm of LaCroix beverages. Okay. Do you prefer the flavor passion fruit or the flavor lemon? Passion fruit. All right. Music. Need to breathe or the cranberries? Need to breathe. Okay. Holidays. Birthdays or Christmas? Birthdays. Ice cream or chocolate chip cookies? Ice cream. Salt or pepper? Salt. Spring or fall? Fall. Boat or train? Train. Grill or oven? 
grill? Pizza or burgers? Pizza. Oh, good answer. That's the end of the lightning round. <laughs> that was hard. I had to like stop my brain from thinking. I'm a little surprised that you chose birthday over Christmas. I know. Me too. That was the one surprise in your whole set of answers. For yeah. Me. Yeah. I – yeah. We could psychoanalyze it all and I could <laughs> I could psychoanalyze myself with all my answers. But not given any time to prepare or think fun. about it. Those Next we answers. need to do – a lightning round for one of our guests. Oh, that'd be so fun. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Or if you're listening to this podcast and you want to have us give you a lightning round, let us know. Yeah, if you just want to call in and have a lightning round, and we don't even have to talk about anything else. You can just do lightning round with us. So reach out to us at Vernacular Pod on Twitter or find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash vernacular podcast. Or our email address, Zach and Sally, vernacularpodcast.com. Dream scenario. Adam Rappaport comes on and we do a lightning round for him. Adam, do you hear that? Adam. <laughs> All right. Cool. Listeners, That's the lightning round. tweet at Adam Rappaport and tell him to come on Vernacular Podcast for right. his own lightning round. <laughs> Give him a taste of his own medicine. <laughs> All right. Well, without further ado, I think we should wrap this up because we have some very exciting conversations ahead of us. So Let's here do it. is Leah Labresco. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're here with our guest for this episode. This is Leah Labresco. Uh, Leah is a blogger at uh, the Pathos blog, Unequally, Unequally Yoked. Uh, it's a mouthful. And she's also a news writer at 538. Leah, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Definitely. Now, I really want to get into uh, all the stuff that you're working on now, some pretty cool projects. Uh, and I really am curious about 538, given that I'm an avid sports fan and all that. So we'll get into that. But before we do that... Uh, the blog that you mentioned on or that you write on Pathos, I should mention, is a uh, a Catholic one, and you're writing from a Catholic perspective. Um, but that's really interesting, I think, because you used to be an outspoken atheist, and I think it was in 2012 that you announced that you were becoming a Christian. So I have to ask, what prompted that change? Yeah, I I actually blogged for Pathos on their atheism channel, and then had to send an oh, email. Was that a little saying, awkward? <laughs> well, it was a kind of weird email because before I told you know my distant friends where I was emailing them going, can, can you move my blog? Like how, <laughs> how does, has this happened before to you guys? Um, yeah. What happened to me is that, you know, I started as an atheist. I grew up as an atheist. Um, and you know, there are a lot of different kinds of atheists and I was someone who believed really strongly in objective morality. So, you know, the idea that there is really good and really bad and it's not something we make up and it's not something that's wholly culturally dependent. It's something a lot more like mathematics. It's a system of rules that's outside us that we can explore and ask questions about, but we can't change. Um, and as I kept kind of when I went to college, I met Christians who were smart and interesting for the first time that I knew as Christians. And I started arguing with them. And in the course of arguing, you know, I'd borrow books or I'd have late night debates. And I started to notice that although I was really sure morality was objective, I had trouble with kind of the harder bits of philosophy of explaining where it came from and how we came to know it. And over the course of, I don't know, maybe four or five years of arguments, um, that was really the thing that ultimately did me in as an atheist. And so uh, I guess that highlighted for you why you couldn't be an atheist, but why Christianity? Yeah. So, I mean, some of that's a lot of the small arguments I had kind of built up the ground for that. So I went from the point of thinking that Christianity was just plain silly, that there were kind of no reasonable people who were who cared about evidence and were actually Christian. And the more I was discussing these things, the more I read people like Chesterton, like Lewis, 
um, read some books about, um, you know, Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, some of the books about the the history of the Bible and of Christ. You know, the more I got to the point where I looked at Christianity and went, I don't believe this, but I think a reasonable person could, and I think it would work from the inside. You know, it's kind of the difference between when you read a book like Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings, that sometimes when you read fantasy or science fiction, you just go, I don't believe in this world. You know, I, I know it's not true, but I also don't believe it. And that's how I'd felt about Christianity. And so I you sort of recognize, I guess, like an internal consistency. Exactly. Where if I like walked through a magic mirror and someone said, Leah, you're in the universe where Christianity is true. I would have said, oh, OK, I know how to exist here. Like this will work. Um, it's just I didn't think I lived in that universe. So what made you become convinced that that universe actually is real? Well, it was really pushing hard on that question of how is it we come to know morality? Because for something like math, like you don't find that many people with a few big enthusiasts accepted who walk around going, mathematics, what can explain our knowledge of it? (laughs) Um, Even though it's actually a similar problem because math and morality are both objective systems of rules that are outside us. But for math, it's easier to see how you could maybe just get from the physical world around you and kind of take Plato's way out where you go, well, I have two feet and I have two brothers and feet aren't really like brothers, except they're both have this quality of two-ness. So I guess I know what two is and you work from there to number theory to everything else. Easy peasy, right? But morality is much harder. Like you can't look around and go, I see someone kicking a puppy and I see someone defrauding an old lady. And I notice that these both participate in the form of injustice. I mean, you can try, but people will reasonably go, really? You do? Like, I don't, right, I don't think right. that's obvious enough that you can just claim to know these important truths in that way. And that was my problem, that I seem to have knowledge of this transcendent good without having the power in myself to come to know it. And I wound up, you know, rehashing this argument with a friend of mine, going over exactly what I told you about Plato and the shoes and the brothers and the old lady and the dog. He's like, okay, so that's what you don't believe. Got it. You know, that's clear. Um, What could work? You still seem really confident you know about morality in some way. So what do you think? Anyway, and I kind of said, "I, I don't know. That's my problem. I don't know. And he pressed me and he said, well, like, just try and come up with something new. Don't repeat the things you don't believe. Just like try exploring, come up with anything new to say about this topic. And I blurted out, well, I don't know. I guess morality just loves me or something. <laughs> and it, That's awesome. It turns out it does. You know, and, <laughs> and it's God. Um, but, you know, it took me a second. I was like, well, look, just because I say things don't mean they're true. Give me a moment. But really, you know, if I felt I had knowledge of the good, but no way to know it myself under my own power, it meant the knowledge came from outside me. And I really felt that it felt more like goodness itself was offering itself to me. You're not talking about a rule book. You're talking about an agent, a person. And once you're up to goodness itself offering itself to me out of love, you are definitely talking about God. Yeah, so you're definitely talking about God, and you're talking specifically about a benevolent God. Yep. Um, Well, a a God that you're kind of starting from with the idea of objective morality can't be anything but good. Right, absolutely. So now we've moved from atheism into a benevolent deism, and then Mm -hmm. where do you get to Christianity? Well, a lot of it was that sense that it was kind of sitting there all ready to be stepped into. So, you know, really that moment for me was like the moment of crossing through the mirror, right, into this alternate world that I'd come to believe worked, provided there was God. Yeah. And then here was God. 
So it was, uh, it was just a, you sort of stepped through on faith and then the lights came on. Yeah. I mean, and, and of course, in fact, I didn't step through at all. You know, I noticed the place where I already was more than anything else. Has your conversion been well received by your blogging audience? Did you lose one audience and gain another or do some still, of your old? I still have a yeah. mix of people, some of whom are still complaining after several years, but they <laughs> wow. stick around to do it. Um, but, you know, I think one thing is that for people who've been reading my blog the whole time, they'd kind of seen me wrestling these, these questions for a while. And I had a number of atheist friends, both in real life and on the blog, who've said, well, I disagree with your conclusions, but I can see how you got there. I just think you went wrong like six steps farther back. Yeah. So in a way, I mean, they were at least recognizing the internal coherence that you had seen exactly. six steps back. Exactly. That's Which so I, I found kind of reassuring, at least, that no one thought my argument was crazy right. as the people who knew me best. They just thought I must have a premise wrong somewhere. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. Well, so speaking of premises, I, I have to ask this. So you work at 538. And for our listeners who don't know what 538 is, it's a news outlet started by uh, Nate Silver, previously of the New York Times. And before that, he was an independent blogger who blogged about sports and uh, economics. He's a very uh, savvy, or really uh, sports and politics. He's a very savvy statistician, does a lot of polling. Uh, ESPN poached him a while back so that he could start a site that was dedicated to data journalism. So um, kind of, I guess, similar in a way, and I mean, Leah, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, but kind of in a way similar to uh, Vox, so this sort of explainer data journalism. And what 538 does is really uh, take uh, the empirical things that you can look at in the news and identify trends or do sort of forecasting of them. And so it's really rooted in this very quantitative empirical epistemology. Yep, that's all pretty much right. Okay, so we've got that. And Leah, you're talking to me about this epistemology yourself that is really that, that you came to believe in, but is really decidedly non-empirical. So how to sort of how do you square the two? Working as a writer at 538. Well, I mean, I think you shouldn't forget that the way I came to know God was by going God. Kind of a bit like math, I suppose, right? Um, But I mean, I do feel lucky in my conversion that God reached out to me along the beauty I knew and trusted most. And it's by being rooted in the beauty of mathematics and the beauty of ways to interpret the world around us that I also wound up at 538. And I think the thing that people forget sometimes is it's always statisticians who are most aware of the limits of what statistics can tell us. Um, it's statisticians who run after you tugging your sleeve and go, don't overinterpret my results. Like they'll only take you so far. And I really see that a lot in my coworkers and in the articles I write that a lot of the times, you know, the stories we write aren't, we can explain the whole world to you, but we can explain why the world is hard to explain. Like we can tell you what data we don't have that we wish we had for this question, you know, which is. You know, sometimes frustrating. I have coworkers go, "Oh, I hate data journalism." When you get to the point where you realize you you don't have any strong conclusion at all, like the point of your story is it's a messy question, and here's how people have fumbled around with it. Um, right, right. But you know, really, it's a lot like that. It's a way of exploring the world, and like any lens you can hold up, it will reveal both the world and kind of the limits of the lens itself. Yeah, I mean that makes a lot of sense. I mean, I I'm I tend to be very skeptical of data journalism because I think it. Um, it overlooks the the aesthetics of the world and it overlooks the narrative form of storytelling uh, and at the expense of just uh, uh, well really it, it trades in those things for telling a story with numbers and I, I take your point that that can be beautiful in and of itself but I think it's less beautiful when it's not in or it's more beautiful when it's not in isolation 
yeah, you know, I mean, anything where it's um, applied math, basically, where you're not going to trust that people just want uh, number theory. You know, the numbers are interesting because they're about something. If you don't convey the stories the numbers are about, along with whatever the trend is, you know, we've fallen down on our job as data journalists. But I've got some really great coworkers who do a good job of kind of revealing what the numbers can do and reminding you what the numbers are about. Yeah, I mean, I do have to say I've, I've seen that in 538. I read it mostly for its sports sections. And, mm-hmm. and they're pretty good at pointing out the limitations of certain statistics that measure a player's efficiency or wins above replacement or whatever the case is. Um, but it also, you know, it, it sort of gives ammo to anyone on any side of the debate in saying whether or not this player is the greatest of all time or whether or not this player is the deserving MVP, et cetera. Well, it's kind of funny also because especially in sports, all debates about who's the greatest in the sport really wind up being debates about what we value about the sport. That's absolutely true. Yeah, You see that in gymnastics and ice skating now where there's controversy over whether what you want are kind of long, lithe, delicate people who kind of have these beautiful lines and this balletic look or kind of stockier, musclier people who can do unbelievable flips, but kind of do them in a starker way. And, you know, there's for that, there's no actual objective gymnastics. It comes down to what is it you value about gymnastics? What part kind of beauty do you want to see reflected there? Yeah, I mean, I think a common one is, you know, greatest of all time in terms of football quarterbacks. Do you look at total touchdowns? Do you look at total passing yards? Do you think it do you look at touchdown to interception ratio? Do you look at total Super Bowl wins, playoff wins? I mean, there's a, a thousand ways you can you can crumble the cookie. Yeah, but now you're out of my depth because I may work at ESPN, <laughs> but the sport I follow most closely is roller derby. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, well, let's go back to a topic you're familiar with, atheism. Um, what do you think of new atheism? And, you know, specifically, it was kind of originated by Sam Harris and Christopher Hitchens. Um, but we hear a lot about it, and we, we hear from them as well as people who call themselves new atheists. Where do you think they go wrong? And maybe just for our listeners' sake, if you could summarize what new atheism is, that'd be helpful too. Yeah, I think a lot of where new atheism um, goes wrong is that it's often written, and I think this kind of does summarize what it is, from a position of besiegement, that a lot of new atheism is aggressive, provocative, because it's trying to clear some space more than it's trying to do anything else. Um, You know, and a lot of new atheists will admit to this. They want to make atheism thinkable, to give people knowledge that someone will stand up for them. Um, And to do that, it's often going after lowest common denominator Christianity. Um, because they're just trying to show that Christianity isn't so tough. It's all right to be atheist. Other people will support you. And they're often striking out against things that are real problems also. You know, an atheist who is pushing back against someone who doesn't want to see evolution taught in public school, he doesn't really have time that second for the niceties of, yes, but what is the metaphysical grounding of morals without a deity? Because right, you know, right. they're trying to deal with something that's a problem right in front of them that impinges on their day-to-day life. You know, and the whole time I was trying to work this out, you know, my own questions about metaphysics, like those don't pinch you day to day the way a lot of these immediate problems do. So I think a lot of new atheism is, you know, reacting to more immediate problems and some of which are real problems and trying very hard to clear a little breathing room to think and kind of return to those larger questions. Now, I think the biggest flaw is that sometimes you'll find new atheists and not all of them either who clear out that breathing room and don't make use of it, who don't kind of turn back to their atheism and go, all right, so like now we have room to be atheists. What do we believe and how do we know it? Um, But I think there's almost an 
exilic feel to a lot of new atheism where, you know, these are a people kind of on the march and trying to find a place to rest. And until they feel safe enough to do that, they often don't have time for the questions that as a Christian, I think would give us more purchase for evangelization. So it sounds like you're saying they are just defensive. And because of that, they overlook wrestling with the actual substantive questions that they don't engage with the serious arguments. And I think sometimes that's not the wrong choice from their perspective. You know, I think some people are defensive reflexively um, or holding on to a pattern of defensiveness when it's no longer necessary. But for some people, they are in a position where, you know, other people dislike them for being atheist or it is making it hard for them to hold their job and the defensiveness is responding to a real threat. Yeah, well, so you mentioned um, C.S. Lewis and G.K. Chesterton. Who else would mm-hmm. you who else would you put in your list of favorite authors or serious intellectual influences? Definitely Alistair McIntyre, where while I was exploring this whole question of how do we know what morality is? What is morality like? I kept looking for books I could kind of hand my Christian friends while they were handing me Lewis and Chesterton and offer back. And I read his book After Virtue and I went, this, this is it. Like this like summarizes everything I thought was true. It goes beyond it. It's more perfect. It's more beautiful. I finally found a non-Christian author like who well summarizes my position. Oops. (laughs) I know he converted to Catholicism after writing the book and I was so ticked off at him. At the time, now I understand. Now I'm more patient. But like, <laughs> I was like, oh, you traitor. Like, we need to. That's so funny. So I, I love Alistair McIntyre for that. You know, though at the time I was angry at him. Um, I also think this is going to sound funny as an intellectual influence but a little. But, you know, there's an extent to which a lot of what made Christianity real and plausible to me was the mix of both the intellectual you know, Lewis, Chesterton, um, Alistair McIntyre, and Edward Fazer's gloss on Aquinas was helpful too. But it also helped to read, honestly, Catholic mommy blogs, where I'd see Christianity at the scale of a human life, and how the faith was shaping these women's lives and choices over small things, like how they dealt with the neighbor's kids who kept coming over when maybe they were tired of them, uh, you know, smaller choices they were making in their marriage. So it connected the high of the metaphysics with the every day of these small choices that weren't, will I go be martyred by the Romans or not, right? You know, I really love that, actually, because we've talked a lot on this podcast before about the value of the home and what you do in the home as a parent. And it's really neat to hear that you were shaped by these very heady philosophers, but also these uh, very faithful women who are doing a often overlooked but very difficult task of being a mom and just living faithfully doing that. Absolutely. I think it's always a good error check on your philosophy or your theology to just look at what it's like to live it. And if you're not making the time to live it yourself because you're off an ivory tower or, you know, buried in your books, which I'm prone to both of those, you at least take a good look and hear the testimony of people who are living the thing you think you're preaching and make sure you recognize it. Can you tell us more about your book, um, Arriving at Amen? Absolutely. So this is a book I wrote after my conversion, because as I kind of told you guys, my conversion was really intellectually rooted. And I didn't have, even having read about these other people, these mommy bloggers and seen my friends, any experience of being a Christian myself after I converted. You know, and I had to kind of make the transition from thinking about God to thinking with God, which is what prayer is. So in arriving at Amen, I'm kind of, 
you know, taking you through my conversion of the heart, where I kind of needed to learn how to spend time with God and who God was, aside from a series of intellectual propositions. And what I feel really blessed about is that this was all hard for me. The intellectual part was the easier part for me. And God kept kind of inviting me in by using other sources of beauty in the same way math helped me find God um, to be able to catch sight of him and be able to receive his love and offer my own. You know, in one example, when I was praying the rosary, um, you know, I got a little stuck on the repetition of it. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to be doing the whole time. I knew it was meditating, right? But like, was I meditating well? Was I meditating enough? Um, and a lot of the time I found out that my rosaries were just me thinking about me praying the rosary and not really being with God as much as far as I could tell. And the thing that kind of helped me through getting stuck there and feeling alone in prayer um, was the very secular pursuit of taking ballroom dance classes. Where when I would take those classes, there's a lot of repetition in dance that most of the time what you're practicing isn't the dips or anything you think of as fancy. It's just the basic. It's just the one, two, three, one, two, three of the waltz. Because you're trying to get the rhythm into your bones so that when your partner moves you, you can move easily and naturally in response to a cue. I kind of looked back at this very repetitive prayer, Hail Mary, full of grace, etc. And thought, you know, maybe I'm being invited to do a basic, just like in dance. You know, maybe my job isn't to do the dips on my own or the lifts on my own, but just to be with God here and get the rhythm of being with God into my bones so that when he moves me, I can respond. But in the meantime, I'm learning how to be responsive to him. That's a really beautiful and, and I think helpful analogy because I think prayer, especially repetitive prayer, is something that it's hard for a lot of people to to accept and understand and appreciate. So thank you for that. I think for a lot of humble things, we just kind of have trouble in the moment appreciating the word you know, really blessed by the fruits of small, humble work. Well, as a final question, um, this really relates to our project here at Vernacular and our mission. What do you think it means to live a flourishing human life? Well, I think it starts with love. I think it starts with looking at the world and other people through God's eyes and recognizing that that's the gaze you're adopting. Um, You know, one thing I like doing sometimes is just when I'm when I'm doing prayer and I'm also walking places um, to pause and look at each person who passes me and to think about the way God looks at them. And I don't have kind of a sustained relationship with each of those people in the moment, but it gives me a glimpse. It's amazing how beautiful people are. We just pause and look at each one of them. Uh, And I know this is the kind of thing that sounds almost like corny and earnest, but I guess a lot of a flourishing life is corny and earnest, right? That the world is, you know, ripe with beauty and ripe with joy and there's a lot of time where we're just trying to catch a glimpse of everything through god's eyes and you know even things that are difficult or friends who are stuck that we can see you know when people are having a difficult time how beautiful they are and how much we want them to be free of what's oppressing them because of you know how lovely they'll be when they're unfurled um, in their full glory and in what god wants them to be and that kind of also helps me in difficult times thinking about you know, that I'm saddened by a situation because I know what it could be and it's falling short, or I know what I could be and I'm falling short. And instead of just thinking about, you know, how limited I am now, thinking about how frustration with those limits points me towards what we're all called to be. 
That reminds me, and perhaps this is a bit corny too, but it reminds me of the line from Les Mis, the musical. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but it's... I love Les Mis. Okay, so you'll probably know this then, but to love another person is to see the face of God. And Absolutely. it just sounds like what you're saying, which I think I've always loved that line. And I think and I think the reason that really is what flourishing is, right, is that we're existing in the world and knowing it as it is, because all that beauty is what the world is. It's not rose colored glasses. It's taking off our gray ones. So it's what flourishing both because it is joyful and because it is truthful. Well, thank you so much, Leah, for joining us. This has been a great interview and we really appreciate you sharing your own story with us. And um, yeah, we're definitely going to point readers and or listeners rather to your blog and all of your writing and your book um, on our website. So thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks for having me on. I want to be the very best like no one ever was. To catch them is my real test. To train them is my cause. I will travel across the land. All right, we're back on Vernacular Podcast with our second topic of the day, and this is about Pokemon Go, that game that has been taking the world by a storm. Uh, the last report I saw said that uh, the active users on Android on Pokemon Go had surpassed the active daily users on Twitter. So they've uh, actually surpassed, active Android yeah. users on Twitter, yeah. Because I found an article that said that they were about to surpass the users of Twitter, but I yeah, guess... the latest I saw was that they had. Now, wow, that's crazy. I don't, I didn't see the sourcing. I just saw it referenced well, I'm not in an surprised article but... because. I keep seeing people on Instagram, and even though this is not like a, real, a source or any sort of scientific measurement, but I keep people see, seeing people on Instagram mentioning Pokemon Go that I would never have expected to be playing this game. So Yeah, exactly. It's very popular. Well, to help us dissect all of this, we are bringing on contributor Kevin Boschman. Kevin, welcome back to Vernacular. Hi, good to be back. You're an expert at Pokemon Go, right? Yeah, absolutely, because uh, my collective playtime as of today, is zero minutes. But, but about uh, uh, 16 years ago, I was an avid player of the card game. So okay, well, basically that's, an expert. that's helpful. Yeah. yeah. So I'm also basically an expert because I've read a few Vox articles about what Pokemon Go is. Same. And a, and a few other uh, articles about the game, Did you ever play Pokemon too. when you were a kid? I never did. Okay, yeah, I didn't Oof. either. So, yeah. so Kevin's got the yeah. most experience with Pokemon. Uh, wow. Right. <laughs> All right, so Kevin, for our listeners who are not educated on Pokemon, and mostly me, explain the basics of Pokemon the game. I'll try not to fall asleep during this part. Right. Oh, wow. Well, 16 years ago, at least, the object, uh, you know, was a video game that that turned into a card game. And the whole object was uh, essentially to go out and catch all these um, kind of creatures that are... Got to catch out. them all. Yeah, got to catch them all. Exactly. That's encapsulates the entire thing and you go out as uh, your little avatar and and catch these uh pokemon and train them and battle other people's pokemon and try to be the best trainer and and just that was it and it was fun the card game uh, kind of took the world by storm as well where you would go out uh, much like you know baseball cards collect them uh and try to build you know the whole deck the complete deck and then uh, it was actually a very social game too in the sense that uh, people would go out and trade them and 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 play the actual card game uh, with each other, and and it was a great thing growing up. 
So there's a lot of differences between that and Pokemon Go. Well, first, right? can I can I ask the obvious follow up question? Um, no, I thought that was the obvious follow-up question. <laughs> no, no, the obvious follow-up is, Kevin, did you catch them all? I, I caught them all. I caught them at least, well, you see, the universe expanded rapidly. Yeah, and, are there like I, 700 I now or something? Yeah, the original 150 or something of that nature, I, I caught all those. And the follow-on set or two after that, I, I had all those. But then it, it, it outpaced me and, and about senior year of high school and I sort of Forswore video games and haven't really played much since. Uh, you know, I basically just I got old very young and, and lost interest. I guess. But. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think they only have the original 150 on Pokemon Go. That's what I've read, and they're hoping yeah. to expand. No, I think exactly. they I think they just expanded to oh. 720. Oh wow! That's what I was reading. Okay, Yikes. okay. Because it was so popular and people were playing so obsessively that the wow. 151 were not going to hold out very long. As wow. An object that most people couldn't reach. Wow. Okay. So for people who have not been spun up on what Pokemon Go is or aren't playing it, which I don't know, maybe that's a lot of people, maybe that's not very many. Can you explain exactly how you play the game? Are you talking to me or yeah, Kevin? Yeah, you. Uh, yeah. So like Kevin, my collective playing time on Pokemon Go is zero minutes. <laughs> uh, don't even have it on my phone. Uh, part of the reason being I don't want to... Uh, you know, give some server in Japan access to my camera on my phone and my location and potentially data on my phone and all this stuff. You don't want to fall off a cliff. So I think there are privacy concerns with this game. I also don't want to fall off a cliff. Also a very important <laughs> point. Sally's referencing a couple guys in California who were playing Pokemon Go, wandering around, uh, trying to catch them all and uh, didn't see a 50 to 100 foot drop in front of them and fell off uh, and went unconscious and eventually recovered. They had to be taken to the ER and all that. Or get lured in by robbers, but, right? Yep, which has also happened. People have been robbed because they are just oblivious to their surroundings. Um, so, But anyway, Pokemon Go is a mobile game played on iOS and Android. And it is an augmented reality game, which basically means it takes the world around you and projects a certain reality onto that real world. I'm sorry, projects a certain image onto that real world. It does not project a reality. <laughs> so it projects images onto reality so that it uh, basically shows you, as you look at your phone, as you look through the camera on your phone, where these Pokemon characters are. And then you have to catch them. But, you're st but like the background is still your actual landscape. Right. So yeah. unlike a virtual reality where you would be looking at an entirely different world, potentially. Right. So virtual reality is something like... Um, Facebook's Oculus, uh, I think it's called the Oculus Rift, where it's it's basically a a enclosed uh, set of goggles that you wear on your face, so you're totally immersed in the reality. That's virtual reality, but okay. augmented reality is uh, something like Google Glass, where you wear okay. the glasses and you can see arrows on the road in front of you as you're navigating, um, or look up in the stars with a star finder on your phone and it can show you where the constellations are. So okay, that's okay. augmented reality and that's what this game does. So you wander around, it aggregates your location information and uses your phone's camera to figure out where the characters are hiding and then you have to catch them on your phone. I think you throw, is it Pokeballs? Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, you throw Pokeballs <laughs> at the characters to capture them. So, but it's, I mean, it's pretty problematic for some people because they're falling off cliffs. Uh, they're wandering around in restricted areas in front of police departments or in people's backyards, whatever the case may be. Uh, so I know our local police department here has issued guidance 
uh, to people who are using Pokemon <laughs> Go so they don't get themselves into trouble well, doing I, so. I overheard a couple grandmas in the gym locker room the other day saying that they were concerned because they saw some kids playing Pokemon Go up on a, um, a railway platform. Oh, my gosh. Oh, so, yeah, that's just... That's and kind of you scary. know it's only a matter of time before there's a massive class action lawsuit against Nintendo for Ooh. causing a lot of personal injuries in this way. Yeah. I know that when you log into the game, you actually have to accept a set of terms that oh. say they're not liable. That's but those things, you know, there's always a question whether those will hold up in court, especially okay. if you don't have the um, the uh, knowledge to really be able to f- uh, fully assent to what you're yeah. signing off on. Well, reading the articles on Pokemon Go, and not playing the game, but reading articles on Pokemon Go, I just found it fascinating how many different pros and cons people have come up with for the game. Like, I, I kind of was just thinking, wow, this is just a new game that people are playing. But obviously a clear con, people not paying attention to their surroundings and getting hurt in some way. Well, yeah, let's open up this discussion. So... Editorial question here at Pokemon Go. We want to hear from our listeners, too. Is the world better or worse off with the advent of Pokemon Go? Well, I thought one interesting argument, which I'll just say I don't find super compelling, but I thought it was really interesting, was that um, it was one article. The title was Pokemon Go May Fix What Ails a Sedentary Generation. Okay, disclaimer. This article is from Salon. Yeah, it's from Salon. (laughs) So... But still, it's one person's opinion. No, 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 you're right. I mean, I'm just saying that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I know. And I know the you're grandmas in the locker room were also saying that they thought that Pokemon was Go was good because it was getting kids outside. Okay. So, so basically, the argument is that people are more sedentary now, and Pokemon Go is a way to get kids who would be otherwise inside, outside, playing outside, being active, etc. Or even adults outside. Well, I thought the funny line in the salon article that you're referencing, Sally, was the point that. Pokemon Go offered the uh, possibility of getting outside and exercising for people who would otherwise not just enjoy jogging for miles on end. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's like an alternative form of exercise. Right. Yeah, and I just don't find that very compelling. I don't think that the people who would otherwise not exercise in any – well, I think it only works for people who would not do any other sort of of exercise – in their daily life. So if they're literally just going to sit around all day, then I can see this being a good thing in their life to get them outside just walking around. But for everyone else, like what kind of form of exercise is this really? Like you're not running. You're not – I mean are you expending a lot of energy? No, you're getting in your steps. Okay, sure. Right. That's right, yeah. <laughs> all you Fitbit challengers out there. Yeah. Get Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go and Fitbit right, will but save still, the so... world from sedentary lifestyles. <laughs> so I guess if you really are going to spend – you're not going to spend any other time in your life, in your daily life, walking or moving, then this could be a positive thing. But if you don't have time for walking around, then how do you have time to play Pokemon <laughs> Go? Yeah, I mean – I, I share your skepticism, Sally, but I'm, I think I'm a little more sympathetic to the exercise argument. But I think what concerns me more is that the game is – it's not just exercise. Yeah. It actually is this augmented reality that takes people's focus off of their surroundings. So, I mean, cardio activity is not the only benefit to being outside. It's also good to take in your surroundings and learn things from your surroundings. So, for example, you can take a stroll down New York City or through New York City or – Rome or wherever Beijing, you wherever yeah. you are, uh, and learn a lot from your surroundings. But if you're just doing it while you're 
immersed in the augmented reality on your phone and looking for Pokemon Go characters, you're going to miss a lot while you're doing that. So can you interact with other players? Because that would be, to me, a con about Pokemon Go. If if you are only interacting – if you if you can't, like, interact with the kid next to you who's playing or the adult next to you who's playing, then – then it's very it's more of an isolated yeah, game, for sure. right? This is this is where it'd be handy if we had played the game before. Right, exactly. <laughs> I know, like they actually the the way the game is set up attracts people to specific locations. So you do, um, and like I've seen pictures of this where you know people are hanging around some, you know, park or whatever. But it's it's kind of this odd um, dynamic, right? Where it looks like you have this big group of people standing around in a park playing this game. But they're not really interested in each other. It's like this group of people they're all trying to find standing Pikachu. around like a monument or some local landmark, staring at their phones with other people all maybe three or four or five foot feet around them, not really interacting with each other. Or they're like wandering around, <laughs> wandering around a church, missing right. the beauty that's around them, just trying to find a little. But it, it's, it's kind character. of interesting you mentioned Zag that dynamic of it because I read an article earlier today. Uh, written by some uh, educators who were talking about how this is a great opportunity because it gets people out into their environment and because it um, kind of pulls people to different landmarks that they can then uh, see buildings they wouldn't have seen or landmarks they wouldn't have seen. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're playing the game, they look up and they're at this old building from the 1700s and they're interested in it. Um, I think something about that article that I didn't find totally compelling, but I did find interesting was that the authors were talking about how uh, these people, um, older people, had been playing the game apparently. And, you know, they were walking around playing the game. They looked up and they found this old building and it was like, oh, my gosh, this is so intriguing. We're going to go check out the building now. Um, I, I guess I find that interesting, but I'm not totally convinced that the average user of the game is going to have that same experience. So. Right. Well, and that, that bit of anecdotal evidence notwithstanding, yeah, I'm just not convinced that the majority of Pokemon Go users are going to be more engaged in their surroundings because of the presence of Pokemon yeah, Go. Yeah, exactly. There's also a story, I mean, this is also just anecdotal uh, and pretty crazy, but there was a young girl who was playing Pokemon Go and came across a dead body in a forest. Oh, yeah, I read that too, yeah. She's crazy. That's scary. That's sort of, I think, not really germane to this discussion, yeah, but a but... crazy fact nonetheless. Yeah. So I, I answered that. my own question. I was Googling while um, you guys were talking, and <laughs> I found out that the game currently has no significant multiplayer capability. This is what Vox says, um, meaning hmm. you can't battle your real-life friends or trade with them, two functionalities that are very big in the handheld games. Right. So, so I guess you're not interacting with other players right. while you're doing this. Thus, the uh, kind of strange phenomenon I, that I've seen on, on in the pictures, where these are there are crowds of people not really interested in one another, but which right. kind of it's it, it's too bad because you know that was one of the great aspects of the card game was that in addition to the sort of individualist aspect where you would collect them, the purpose of collecting them was to then go and go do uh, battle and, and exactly and and you know play with the kid down the street or whatever and get to yeah. know people there's actually in this same article i was talking about from the educators uh, apparently there's there's some educational um researcher who at one point credited the card game with teaching an entire an entire generation how to read which i don't think wow. is, is too convincing <laughs> but I, I think the point is is well taken that it did teach something and in, in that you had to learn um you know 
this aspect of the game and it, it you had to interact with other kids and you know sometimes you probably as a younger kid got taken advantage of by older kids who knew more about the value of different cards and things like that. So it that. teaches so you it, street smarts. It, yeah, in a, in a very strange way it did, you know? <laughs> well, yeah, so I but, think I think we're sort of isolating the lack of interactivity in this game as a key problem with it. Yeah, but I, I agree. But maybe we can pause the pros-cons discussion for a second. I do just want to say, you know, I, I get the argument that it gets people outside. I'm sympathetic to it. But I also want to point out that we've reached a really sad place if – we need a game like Pokemon Go to get people outside. Yeah. Mm. And to get people just walking around. Right. Because it's not like we're getting them to go work out on a regular basis and get their heart rate up. I mean, they're just walking. Right. Walking's good. I'll take walking. But just the fact that we need Pokemon Go to do it. I mean, so for example, uh, I don't know if you guys are familiar with geocaching. Yes. Okay, so geocaching is awesome. And it is a worldwide network of people who hide these little treasure troves in locations called geocaches. Oh, and yeah. you have to actually f- travel to the places, right, right? Exactly. So you you know you go on like long hikes into mountains or national parks or municipal parks or whatever to find these geocaches. And then when you do, you take something and you give something. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a really cool activity that you can do with friends. It's very interactive or can be very kinda interactive. Like scavenger hunt. Ka- yeah, kind of. Yeah, kind of like a scavenger hunt. hunt. <laughs> Um, so something like that to me is way cooler yeah. than collecting mm-hmm. digital Pokemon characters. And there's an, there's at least, uh, the possibility for interactivity with it. Um, and so we have things like that already, but they're not being used. And so it's just sad to me that well, Pokemon Go that is requires, what does it. Pokemon Go is so much easier. You just download the app. It's free. It's on your phone. You don't have to go travel or spend money. You're just kind of, you know, you're just wandering around your own surroundings so well, you, you don't have to travel it's... with geocaching i mean you can like walk oh, down to the within... park in your house oh, okay you know? okay i didn't realize that yeah so you don't have to like fly to africa oh, to okay that's what i imagined in my no mind. no i mean you can if you want to <laughs> yeah <laughs> if you're really into it <laughs> okay well another interesting um argument against pokemon go is how it affects the economy yeah and this i think it's an argument really not so much against Pokemon Go, but against the phenomenon like of Go. which Pokemon Go sure. is really only the, only the latest iteration. And it, I mean, in some ways, uh, it's just, it's globalization. But the argument here is that with Pokemon Go, I'll, I'll try to make it concrete. With Pokemon Go, uh, you can buy upgrades to your characters or buy tools that help you find characters more easily. In and, the app. Right. So they're just in-app purchases. But when you make those purchases... All of that money, of course, goes into the pockets of Nintendo. And where's Nintendo base? It's in Japan. So you have a person who could be living in the town of Zachary, Louisiana. Great name, by the way. <laughs> and they're playing Pokemon Go on their phone. And they make these in-app purchases. And let's say they make $50 in in-app purchases. Well, that's $50 out of the economy of Zachary, Louisiana and into the pockets of Nintendo, which I think is a Fortune 500 company, certainly a very big company. Um, that doesn't really need the cash and certainly needs it less than the town of Zachary, Louisiana does. Instead of purchasing some form of entertainment in his own town, which then the money just will stay. Right. I mean, instead of going uh, bowling, Kevin, I know you're a bowler. So instead of going (laughs) bowling and supporting the local bowling alley or going to see a movie and supporting that or going out to eat and supporting a a local restaurant, you're uh, sending $50 to a Japanese company. It's Uh, funny because actually since the 
since the bowling discussion comes up, uh, I've actually talked to a couple of uh, proprietors of local bowling alleys who actually in um, only half tongue in cheek will say they wish that they could find a way to get the Pokemon to wander into their bowling center. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's hilarious. Cause they see these, you know, they see kids outside of the bowling center, uh, basically wandering around trying to catch these creatures and they're just like standing outside trying to get people to come inside and spend money oh on my their gosh. business. And <laughs> Guys, we're right here. You can bowl with yeah. your friends. You can have fun in real life. Yep. Okay, but so you're saying that this isn't a very strong argument against Pokemon Go because so many other things do this as well, take money out of the regional or local economy and send it to big companies elsewhere. Uh, that's actually not what I'm saying. Okay. So I'm saying that the, that this as an argument against Pokemon Go specifically has limited utility because really it's an argument directed against the larger phenomenon that has given us Pokemon Go. Yeah. Okay. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. But what I do think is that we need to be careful about these things because I think there's a lot of merit to the argument that, that things like Pokemon Go, and I'm not blaming Pokemon Go for the demise of rural communities in the United (laughs) States or anything like that, but I think I think there's a lot of um, there's a lot of substance to the suggestion that uh, things like Pokemon Go, things like outsourcing jobs uh, to uh, places outside of a country's borders, uh, things like Amazon. Amazon, yeah, exactly, a global retailer, those do actually subtract from local, uh, much smaller economies yeah. at, at the municipal and county level. Netflix would that be a good example? Because uh, I don't go to a no, local it would. Yeah, I mean, that's, video store exactly. Anymore. That's why video mm-hmm. stores are basically yeah. defunct. Yeah. I don't. I don't know of a single video store. Maybe does your hometown where you grew up have one still? Well, they I think they might. They do, I think, but they have had so much trouble staying afloat. They every time we go it's home, a, to it's see in my a parents, south suburb like of in Chicago. A different, it's in a different location. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Which is sad. I mean, it's the, it was kind of a staple of your childhood. Like you guys would go right. on and weekends you would see and people that you knew who worked there. Right. Yeah. No, that's interesting. So, Zach, do you think that the the kind of new manifestation of this in apps and games like Pokemon Go, do you think this is somehow fundamentally different than um, phenomena such as Amazon and maybe even going back further into history, um, things like retail magazines, Sears Roebuck, that kind of brought retail um, distribution beyond the traditional extent or is this um, more just a, a, a progression of that same phenomena? No, I think it's certainly a, a progression of the same. I think the difference between um, – in, ter- in terms of degrees, the difference between Pokemon Go and Amazon is probably about the same as the difference between Amazon and you know Sears Roebuck catalogs. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly one and the same phenomenon. But uh, Pokemon Go I think is just the latest iteration of it. And – Really, I guess not Pokemon Go, but like you were saying, iOS and Android in-app purchases, right? Where mm-hmm. this is the phenomenon. You buy an app or buy things within an app, and that money goes right into the pockets of a company somewhere else. And all you get in return is not something physical, but you actually get a digital product. Right. Um, which is, which it's, is, even, it's even somewhat different from you know just the, the emergence of, I don't know if you really call them traditional, but more traditional uh, video games in the sense that if you had a system – uh, you had to go out and buy the disc or the cartridge or right. whatever, and that entailed, at least before Amazon uh, right. and before online just digital downloads, before those um, kind of things emerged, you had to actually go to 
a store, even if it was, you know, a Walmart or someplace like that, and at least in some form, uh, put some money into the local economy, which may not be the case anymore. Right, right. And of course, yeah, going to a Walmart is hardly putting money into a local economy, with the exception that that, that Walmart does employ people in the the local, yeah. um, But yeah, it's sort of a, a, a fuzzy line there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, I think I think we're we're hitting on something important here. You know, I, I definitely lament the loss of local economies uh, across the U.S. Vice News um, has done some interesting work highlighting this phenomenon. Um, the Washington Post has run a recent uh, series of stories about rising death rates among uh, white women in rural America, particularly mm-hmm. in the Midwest, um, that are really thought provoking as well. And you know, again, not not single handedly blaming Amazon and uh, in app purchases for that demise. Right, well, but I think the it's a part of the story. conversation kind of started with John Steinbeck and Wendell Berry. Right, and it right. reminds me of our roundtable where Margaret brought in that John Steinbeck short story. Yeah, absolutely. Talking about the loss of regional dialects as an example. Right. Of what globalization has done. Well, and perhaps even in a very interesting way, I think a lot of people. Um, Kind of dream of the time when, you know, labor is no longer a part of the human experience and machines or whatever have you have taken over and and human beings are completely leisure based. And yet almost every major social study of the issue has indicated that unemployment, um, just complete lack of gainful employment is actually one of the best indicators of um, kind of a higher crime rate because oh, especially, yeah. you know, young men who they don't have nothing have else to do, to do, all this energy, um, get involved in, in detrimental behavior. So, yeah, we actually, we talked a little bit about this in season one with, um, Astrid and Aaron, uh, mm-hmm. who are, uh, Astrid works in Washington, DC at a think tank and Aaron's a hops farmer in Virginia, um, where they live. But we talked to them about the future of work. And, um, right. I, I really think that, seeing the dissolution of labor would be a really bad thing. Right. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I do. I think, and I said in that episode, I think that having to work hard and having a work ethic contributes to our human flourishing. And that right. without it, I think we would be less happy in the, in the larger sense, individuals. Right. Certainly based on the assumption that if you don't have something that you're required to do that you will fill that time with something else that is productive or fruitful. And, and I think, um, even if our best intentions are for that to be the case, I think we all have plenty of examples of, um, the kind of gross amount of time that we waste, um, yeah, in we don't kind of have mindless that structure. activities. Yeah. Exactly. And yeah, I'm guilty just as much as anyone. Totally. We were going to bed last yeah. night and Sal and I were talking about how we need to be watching less Netflix and reading more books. <laughs> <laughs> and just to bring it full circle, when you don't have you know anything to do, you go and play Pokemon Go instead of maybe reading something that will bring an enhancement to your life. Right. Or getting a gym membership. Also good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Or Fitbit. <laughs> All right. Well, I think I think are we settled then that Pokemon Go that the world is worse off with Pokemon Go? Gosh, we are such pessimists. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I think that's that is a like safe way to say it because I, I definitely don't want to be accused of saying the Pokemon Go is a terrible game or right. it's ruining our world or anything like that. But if we're saying like are our lives better or are our lives worse, I guess if I have those two choices, then I would say worse. 
I almost think the more we talk about it, I almost think that the the world is really neither better nor worse off, but that Pokemon Go is really just a symptom of the world as mm. it is now. Yeah, that's fair. You know, there's the, uh, one of my favorite kind of quips is, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. And I'm sure the Pokemon Go of today is the, you know, stick ball of four or 500 years ago. So uh, <laughs> is it really, <laughs> is it really, you know, better or worse? Um, I'm not inclined to say one or the other, but I certainly don't look at it and think that Pokemon Go is is benefiting society in any meaningful way. It's just uh, another manifestation of human nature's inherent desire to fill its ungainfully employed time with mindless something or other. So. Wow, wow. All and right. to, to pull back from that just a little bit, um, <laughs> I, I think one oh, another way to think about it could be that we have come so far as a culture that we do need something like Pokemon Go to help us be less lazy and help us kind of get out of ourselves. And so we just can't sit around here just like in our closets talking about ideals that are long gone. Actually in our closets. That's where our our sound studio is. Literally in our closet talking about these ideals of the past that we just can't get back and Mm. we would like our kids and ourselves to be doing a lot more ambitious things with their time but maybe this is maybe this is just where we are no i'm actually getting rid of my cell phone closing my netflix account and shopping only in my local general store (laughs) nice (laughs) i have tried to give amazon less of my money by going to the local library more that's a really good idea so maybe now I should find a local video store. We strongly support supporting <laughs> your local library. I don't know if we have a local video store. I don't Probably think we do. I really don't think we do. There's no the people. Local, the local Redbox kiosk. <laughs> Just head to your local Redbox kiosk. Go local. I would bump into local. my neighbors maybe at the Redbox. It's possible. So. Yeah. Hey, what movie are you guys watching tonight? Okay, have fun. <laughs> All right. Well, this has been a good discussion, Kevin. As always, thank you so much for joining us. uh, And best of luck if you decide to download Pokemon Go, and we hope you catch them all. All right. Thanks. Right, that's it for this episode of Vernacular Podcast. Or that's almost it, actually. We do need to, of course, check the mailbox. Yes, we haven't done this in a while. So do we have anything? We have an overflowing inbox. But in the interest of time, (laughs) I'm just going to choose one email to read. Right. (laughs) Hundreds of our fans wrote in. Thank you so much, everyone. But I'm going to read this one from Elena. She listened (laughs) to the last episode where we were talking with Jordan and Catherine about road trip songs. And... She said that when I was trying to remember the song from 27 Dresses that I would include on my must-have list of songs, she was shouting at us on the podcast, yelling, Benny and the Jets, Benny and the Jets. And just uh, for clarity, (laughs) if you haven't heard this episode of the podcast, Sally thought it might have been something by the the Bee Gees. (laughs) I just – I don't know what – I don't know. I don't know what was going on. The Benny Jets. Yeah. That's basically (laughs) as similar as it gets to the Bee Gees. Okay, it was a valiant so effort. anyways, it was Elton John, Benny and the Jets. Right. And Elena says, I don't even like 27 dresses, but I know the song. So, <laughs> yes, Elena, I still feel silly about that and do not know why I couldn't remember it in the moment. But <laughs> go listen to the song. It's a fun one. It is. And listen to that episode, too. Also a fun one. 
All right. And before we finish out this episode, we wanted to plug Zach's new article on Medium. Yeah, well, we'll just plug our blog in general, blog.vernacularpodcast.com. It's actually run through Medium, so it's a really nice interface. It's fun to read. You can comment or highlight parts of the blogs that you like. Uh, Recently, I wrote an article about third-party voting and why people should consider it more often. Yeah, without any particular reference to this upcoming election, but, you know. Yeah, just sort of a theoretical examination (laughs) of how we should think about third-party voting. Yeah. So. Yeah, check it out. And you can just reach that by hitting blog on our actual website. Right. So it'll just direct you right to the Medium blog. Right. Uh, Speaking of our website, vernacularpodcast.com. Check it out there. You can read up more about what our mission is and what we're up to and hear all the past episodes. You can also, of course, hear those episodes on iTunes and Google Play. And if you want to answer our editorial question of the week, which is, is the world better off or worse off because of Pokemon Go, um, you can email us at Sally at vernacularpodcast.com. You can also reach out on Twitter, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, at vernacularpod. And on Facebook. And I'm going to let you say where on Facebook. <laughs> Facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast. Slash vernacularpodcast. I will remember that one of these days. You got it. <laughs> Vernacularpodcast.com slash Facebook, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. I think that is it for us here at Vernacular Podcast. So, for Vernacular Podcast, I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week.